Hello and welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source of all things IFRS, technical accounting matters, business issues, current standard setting and regulatory updates. I'm your host, Ruth Preedy. In this episode, it is part two of IFRS 10, that's Consolidated Financial Statements. So listeners, if you haven't listened to part one, stop now and go and find it in iTunes because this is going to be a slightly harder getting into the, the detail of IFRS 10. Joining us again, we've got Mary Dolson, who is one of our lead IFRS partners. Welcome back, Mary. Hi, Ruth. You're a resident now. More control. Yeah. More control. More IFRS 10. We love it. Or not. <laughs> I do, really. Okay, so what we learned in the first part was there's three elements to control. So you've got power, you've got exposure to variable returns, and then you need a link between those two things. So before we get into some of the trickier areas, what about that link? Is it what I can actually do, or is it what I intend to do? Intent is irrelevant. Okay. When it comes to IFRS 10, it's what do I have the power to do? I don't have to demonstrate that I've done it. So, you know, I could say, you know, I'm a multinational food company, but somehow I accidentally own a bank in Spain. I don't intend to control the bank. I don't tell the bank what to do. The bank just does its bank thing and pays me some dividends from time to time, but I ignore them. Nope. Right. I have the ability. I could sell the bank. Right. I could close the bank down. I could, you know, merge it with something else. Right. Yeah. I could change its purpose. Right. It could become a, you know, a Marks and Spencer. <laughs> so uh, whatever. Not right. So. so it's what I have the ability to do, not what I have demonstrated that I will do. Great. So that's really useful because I think we often hear, but that isn't what I intended. So really, intention isn't important. If you can control, then you're in the control model. Okay, so little clarification on what we discussed last time. So let's start going through some of the elements now. First thing in the IFRS 10 is principal versus agent. So what's the point in that? Principal versus agent was really put in the standard to deal with the conundrum around managed money. So anytime you set up a kind of pooled investment vehicle, so it would close a fund, you know, a trust, a unit trust, whatever it is you call it in your country, what you do is you get together a bunch of unrelated investors, you appoint a money manager, you give it a purpose, and essentially its purpose is almost always to buy and sell or trade in usually a specified category of assets. So it might be a, a high, uh, high yield growth fund, or it might be a bond fund, or it might be a might buy real estate properties, but whatever it is, it's to bring together disparate capital providers with professional money management. So the money manager, actually, when you look at them, they have all of the relevant activities. So, you know, if it's a real estate fund and it says, I'm going to buy 20 buildings, right? Whoever selects the buildings and then has the ability to, you know, name the manager and, you know, say, I don't like that building so much anymore. I think, you know, the market's topping out in that city. So I'm going to sell that building and realize it and reinvest it. Whoever has the ability to make those decisions about the assets, so buy, sell, hold, manage, you know, work out, whatever it is, that party has power over the relevant activities. And that's part of, of the control assessment. And they're the principal. 
not the agent. No, no, actually the party who's making those decisions is actually the agent. Okay. Probably. But we're not we're not we're not done yet, so we don't know. Right. So if you think about it, if I if I have that power and I'm a I'm a professional investment, you know, manager, right? Why am I not consolidating everything I touch, right? There's two ways in which investment managers would not consolidate their the assets that they have under management. One way is they say, I'm actually just acting as agent for the principals. So the principals in that case are the capital providers, right? They have named me to be their agent. They're paying me a reasonable fee, right? But actually they constrain my power because they can replace me, right? So if you're an agent, but your power is constrained, then probably you don't have the, so the power, you don't meet the power criteria because if I can replace you, you're going to do what I say, right? So in fact, if I'm the principals, I'm directing your activity. The other way in which the money managers don't consolidate their fund, the assets they have under management is they say, I don't have sufficient exposure to variable returns. So I've got a fund that's got $100 million worth of assets in it. I'm the fund manager. Maybe I own 5% of the fund and I'm getting you know 1% of fair value of assets at the end of the year every year. Really, all I've got is I've got $100 million worth of assets and I've got a 6% interest in the return, right? So where the exposure, so the exposure to variable returns there is pretty big, but it actually rests with, so, so it's the, the, the principals who have the rights to those variable returns. And I only have a right to a very small piece, part of which is my own shareholding, but the other part is, is my money fee. So I don't, in that case, if I'm the money manager, I don't have su- sufficient exposure to variable returns to say that I meet the second part of the criteria, right? So yes, I have power. Maybe you can't constrain my power because it's impractical for you to replace me, but I don't have enough variable returns to say that I have control. Okay, so I just take a slice, which is effectively my fee. Yep. Okay, so that's really um, a good example of how those three parts of IFRS 10 uh, definition as well all come together you need all three of them okay so next thing which I do see lots in practice is potential voting rights so not maybe a right today but maybe a right in the future some options so what do I need to look out for there it's an area where we had a big change from 27 to 10 so it used to be what was presently exercisable you had to deem to be exercised so if I had an option even if it was wildly out of the money, it was exercisable today. I had to deem it deem it exercised and take that into account when looking at my voting power. It was easier. It was that Yeah, it was. It was. It was a lovely, <laughs> a, lot of a blunt instrument, but a lovely role. Right? <laughs> Potential voting rights is more difficult because it says I might have voting rights which are not presently exercisable today, but that give me the ability to have this power, right? So when there's relevant activities, I'm going to be in charge, right? So a a practical example, let's say I'm interested in a mine, right? And somebody owns 100% of the mine, but I've got an option over 60% of the shares in the mine, right? And if at any point in time, but I don't want to pay very much for it, even though the mines, you know, I don't want to pay very much for my option, so I've said, all right, you know, here's $25 million for the option. But if you find, you know, ore of a sufficient quality, insufficient quantity within a five-year period, 
I will pay you $500 million and then I'll control the mine, right? And, you know, I have 60% of the shares. Even though that today, the day that you start your mine development, it's wildly out of the money, right? Nobody in their right minds would, would you know, it's not exercisable because yeah. you haven't found the ore. And it's wildly out of the money anyway, so nobody would pay the $500 million, right? I still have, in those circumstances, I as the holder of the option have power. If something good happens, I get to come take it from you, yeah. right? And it's a really interesting way in which investors can provide highly risked capital, but the right to dis- right to to really huge returns. Right? It's an interesting. Well, it's a tricky one because you could go into that option with the mine, like you give the example, and then actually you might have, say, a couple of years where you don't have anything to do with the day-to-day running in the mine because nothing's happened, Mm -hmm. but you're still effectively saying, I control from day one and therefore I need to consolidate. Yeah, so I'm not telling them how to execute their mine plan. I I mean, there might be something in our option agreement that you, you know, proceed in accordance with reasonable professional practice and, you know, as in accordance with mining engineer guidelines or whatever those might be, right? But the economic interests of the parties are going to be very clearly aligned. You want to find ore, right? And then you want to sell it to me. (laughs) Then you want to sell me your business. Once your business is valuable enough, you want to sell it to me. So in essence, our interests are so closely aligned, I don't need to be telling you how to do it, right? You're going to be digging away like crazy, trying to find the ore so that you can sell your mind to me for $500 million. Yeah, yeah. So I don't need to tell you what to do every day. Yeah. Okay, so for potential voting rights, two things there which I think are maybe misconceptions when IFRS 10 came in were it doesn't matter if it's in the money and it doesn't matter if it's currently exercisable. That's exactly right. Okay, so there are two listeners. Note those two things down. That's what we're looking out for, for potential voting rights. Okay, so moving on to our next topic, IFRS 10 has this concept of de facto control. What does that mean? Well, they don't call it that, right? What do they call but it? <laughs> it, it's, it doesn't actually have a name, which yeah. is kind of unhelpful. But de facto control is when you've got a public company, but somebody has a really big chunk of shares in the public company. And I have sufficient shares... And, you know, there's so many passive shareholders in public companies, people who don't show up, people who don't grant their proxies, that kind of stuff, that I've actually demonstrated over the years that anything I, any resolution I propose in shareholder meetings I gets executed, right? So I, as the holder of the big block of shares. Yeah. And this doesn't really reconcile so well with our idea of the ability to control. It's one of the few times that the demonstration of control actually overwhelms ability because clearly the other shareholders, if they got annoyed enough, might turn out to vote. Well, it's interesting, you know, again, shareholder behavior is a fascinating thing. So shareholders will, sometimes they'll proxy, they'll grant a proxy for only one issue if they're really annoyed with management about compensation or something like that. But for the most part, especially retail investors, don't vote. So IFRS 10 says, if you have this concentration of shares and you observe over time that you have control, then actually you should just consolidate. Okay. So if you do have a, you know, a big-ish but not over 50% shareholding, you need to look out for something like that. You need to consider it. Okay. Okay, brilliant. In our last bit of the podcast, what we thought we'd do, so we talked about structured entities in our last one, but we didn't really get into a juicy example. So we thought in this one, we would spend, say, five minutes just looking at an example with leases. So 
Mary, go for it. I'm going to ask stupid questions as we go to help me. (laughs) Okay. So leasing is a good one because it feels more accessible to people than trying to do a complicated CDO structure. Somebody who's got financial instruments and hedges and, yeah, you know, let's keep away from derivatives and all that kind of stuff flying in 16 Ooh. different directions. So yeah. let's keep it simple and yeah. we're going to have an airplane. Okay. Right? So quite often airplane, airplanes are leased. We all know this. Yeah. <laughs> even What's though the, the leasing standard. He told us so. <laughs> right? Even though the leasing standard is changing, I suspect there'll still be many instances where a structured entity is set up that will own a single airplane. So how does this work? Somebody sets up a shell company and sort of gets it ready, right? And then they go to the manufacturer and say, okay, you know, I want the next Airbus 380, right? And I've got a lessee, right, who's agreed to take the first 10 years and then has got options over, you know, two five-year options after that. And they start to put this together in a package and then they go into the markets and they say to people, do you want to loan money to my lovely structured entity, which is going to have an airplane and, you know, we're going to have this stream of cash flows. Here's our potential customer, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So those kind of entities never come into real existence until all of the pieces are lined up. So we have a, a lessee, we have a supplier. So we have somebody who's going to sell us the plane. We probably know what plane it is. And we've got our debt holders in place, right? So lo and behold, we, we start the structure up. People loan us the money. We buy the plane. We send the cash off to the manufacturer. And we get the plane painted in the right colors and kitted out in the right livery. And we send it off to, say, British Airways. Right. Okay. What are the relevant... So that's a structured entity. It's yeah. probably thinly capitalized. Whoever it is who owns the equity probably doesn't have many any power associated with those. So they can't change what it does, right? They can't yeah. make it into an airline just because yeah. it now owns a plane, right? Or they can't, can't turn it into a bus. They can't turn it into yeah, they can't sell the airplane <laughs> and buy a bus, right? Yeah. So so they don't really have control through voting rights, right? What does so what are the returns generated within the structured entity? And what are the interest holders in the structured entity, in this case being the debt provider? So what's the obvious return of the structured entity? It comes from the cash flows. They're going to come from the lessee, right? So are the people who've invested in that structured entity, are they exposed to the airplane? Or are they exposed to the creditworthiness of British Airways? And that's a question for you, Ruth. Oh, God, let's hope I get it right. So to me, it sounds like they're exposed to the creditworthiness of BA. So it doesn't actually matter what BA do. They could have it grounded, but as long as they can pay back the lease payments. Yes. So so they could be using that plane very, very efficiently and keeping it in the air every day and deploying it on very profitable routes. Or they could be using it very inefficiently. It doesn't matter. They still have to pay me. Yeah. So I'm not actually really exposed to the performance of the plane, am I, right? I'm exposed much more to the period of the lease, right, and the creditworthiness of the lessee. So what are some relevant activities in those circumstances? So uh, collecting the lease payments. Making sure that I collect the lease payments, monitoring the creditworthiness of the lessee. Yeah. Right. So what if their performance starts to decline? At what point am I... Who's empowered to act and when are they empowered to act? Who makes the decision at the end of the 10 years about do I allow them to renew or do I take the plane back and look for another customer? So those probably are the most obvious relevant activities. And linking back to number one, look at the bad things. So what mm-hmm. happens if so what the happens airline if, goes if, bankrupt? Yeah, if the, if the airline that's using the plane goes bankrupt, who acts, right? Yeah. So who, you know sends the guys to seize the plane, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I it happens, right? Yeah. 
Seriously, they wait till it's grounded someplace, and then yeah. they go and they you know slap a, slap an order on it, right? So so who who is it that that seizes the asset, right? In, in the ultimate difficult circumstance, or who makes that decision? Who says, for example, okay, I'm not going to let you renew for five years, but I'll let you renew for a year at a time. And by the way, I want you to pay in advance. So so there's other steps between you know decline in credit worthiness and bankruptcy, right? Yeah. So so in some of those intermediate steps, but also. The, the, the bondholders or the, the capital providers to the structured entity, they may have asked for a residual gap value guarantee on the plane, right? So quite often these things are set up so that you run out the first lease, so maybe that's 10 years, and then somebody can choose to sell the plane, right? Who has the power to sell the plane? And also, if the plane doesn't sell for enough to pay out the bondholders, does somebody have to make up the difference, right? So it might be that the manufacturer of the plane says, well, okay, I'll give you a residual value guarantee at 10 years, and I'll give you another one at 20 years. Right? So at either of those points, the, the party who's administering the structured entity could offer the plane into the secondary market, take the proceeds, remit it to the bondholders, and say, by the way, manufacturer, give me the difference. I didn't get enough. Or there's some left over. Here's the proceeds. So it's one of those circumstances where you really have to look at who has, has somebody guaranteed that return to the bondholders. I don't think the bondholders are going to have power, yeah. right? Because they'll have signed up to the terms of the structured entity. So I would go back to who has the ability to step in, right? Who has the ability to make the next set of decisions about the, the airplane? So do I go on leasing it to you? Do I lease it to somebody else? Do I take it back? Do I sell it? And, and then who's got the, any, is, does somebody have residual risk? Because, you know, in my world, bad always is a little bit heavier weighted than good. Yeah. So if I have to guarantee the sale proceeds of the plane for the purposes of the bondholders, probably I would look to that party to be more exposed to the, to the activities of the structured entity. So I would probably go there and look for control. Okay. So in that circumstance, quite often you might say, feels to me like it might be the manufacturer, but if the manufacturer hasn't given a residual value guarantee and you've got a genuine sort of third-party agent who's in there managing it, it may be that nobody's actually, you don't have, you don't see a controlling party in that scenario. Okay. And I suppose that, that third, you mentioned the third-party agent mm-hmm. there, if you work out who appoints them and they can get rid of them, things like that, again, that's going to come into Yes. Play. So if the third-party agent has the genuine ability to make the decision to sell or hold the asset, to sell the asset, maybe maybe they can even go as far as to propose, you know, I'm going to sell the asset and I'm going to buy another one, or I'm going to choose my customer, right? Who, whoever appoints that person or the process for appointing that person can often show you where control lies. Brilliant. Perfect. Taking us nicely to the end of our 20 minutes, Mary. So just a little recap of what we covered today. So this, remember, is part two of our IFRS 10 series. We could probably bring out about 10 of these, but we won't. We talked about the difference between the ability to control and the intention. We talked about principal versus agent, where you've got potential voting rights, de facto control, and then a typical example we see in in a structured entity, so leases. So thank you so much again for joining us today, Mary. We could talk all day about it, but we won't. If you want more information, please visit our website on pwc.com forward slash IFRS. I'm your host, Ruth Preedy. Happy accounting. The preceding programme was brought to you by Price Woodhouse Coopers, LLP.
This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.